Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Namaste, motherfuckers. Welcome to Namaste, motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy, and well-being collide. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and today's episode is called "Most People Are Nice," and it's all about kindness. I should say, by the way, my voice isn't always this husky and sexy, but I lost it uh, a couple of days ago and I've sort of got it back. Back to kindness. In the words of William Wordsworth, the best portion of a good man's life, his little, nameless, unremembered acts of kindness and of love. Perpetually kind people have 23% less of the stress hormone cortisol and age twice as slowly as the average population. And now for the science bit. Acts of kindness lower blood pressure because they create emotional warmth, which releases oxytocin, which in turn causes the release of nitric oxide, which dilates the blood vessels. And like antidepressants, kindness stimulates the production of serotonin. So even if you're a selfish bastard, there's loads of reasons to be kind. No act of kindness, no matter how small, is ever wasted. That's a quote by Aesop, the ancient Greek storyteller, not the high-end soap brand. There we are. No problem. Have to announce it now, don't we? You can't just do it by stealth. Quite right. That's my guest today, filmmaker, comedian and writer, Danny Wallace. Now, usually at this point in the podcast, as regular listeners will know, there's another bit of unmissable trivia. But today, I just want to say, on behalf of me and my lovely producers at Pod People, how very much we love, love, love that you're listening to this. And we super love all the messages we get every week from people like you telling us how into it they are. So your random act of kindness today, motherfuckers, could be to rate us on iTunes, leave a review, and tell even just one other person that it's cool. So, because we love you so much, here's one last little bonus kindness fact. There's a new word that's come into the dictionary, caremongering, which refers to a person who performs altruistic acts to help vulnerable members of his or her community. Now, come on, that is a kind and lovely thing. Is that your home studio? This is, yeah, like a little downstairs uh, basement two room. Danny Wallace has done quite a bit that you may know him for, but he's probably best known for Yes Man, the book that went on to become a Hollywood movie starring Jim Carrey, 
and join me, the cult that Danny started by accident in 2002, built on the premise of random acts of kindness. It went on to become a massive global movement, which still goes strong today with thousands of members all around the world. Danny is a regular radio and TV presenter and has written numerous other books, including Awkward Situations for Men and Fuck You Very Much, a book about rudeness. Danny and I talked about losing one's hair, losing one's parent, hot dogs, kindness, men's bodies, techniques for trolls, the mighty boosh and homeschooling during a pandemic. But I started by asking Danny about his latest project, his podcast, Monatomy. Yeah, uh, Monatomy. Um, during during lockdown, and I think one of the reasons that I don't know, it was it was obviously very hard for a lot of people who don't have you know what are known as proper jobs. Um, and um, and you want to keep busy as well. And so during lockdown, I kept quite busy. And I started this thing with my friend where we would write lots and lots of things and just send them to each other with the idea of creating something one day. And then we thought a podcast would be good, wouldn't it, to go along with it. And we were thinking about um, ideas. And I sort of said to him, what about, what about we ask men to talk us through their bodies? And we both immediately thought that's an awful idea because neither of us would want to be on that podcast. <laughs> and that's exactly why we thought it was a good idea as well, because we don't normally talk about that stuff and we find it awkward or weird, or some people find it vain, or they just think it's something men don't do. But the second you start talking openly and warmly and in a funny way with them, um, man, they open up. So yeah, it's been, it's been uh, interesting and eye-opening. And your first episode was with a woman. Is that going to be the mm. only uh, episode with a woman? No, not at all. No. Um, I, want, I wanted to start with Jamila Jamil um, because she started a conversation um, globally um, and is a bit of an expert. And we are, you know, many years behind as men because we haven't been relentlessly bullied um, for so many years or given impossible standards. Um and now it's sort of creeping in a little bit. And so we wanted to start with someone who really knew what they were talking about. And no, she won't be the only woman. We've recorded with um, some other brilliant women, um, all of whom have something to say or a unique perspective on it. Um, and, um, and yeah, it is awkward when you do things that are sort of man-based because people think it's somehow excluding or exclusive. Um, but really, I, I can't speak for everybody. I can only speak for what it's like to be a man. And so we thought we'd give that a go. That's a, it's a good thing to give a go. One thing that someone has personal experience of, uh, in your yeah. case, being a man. Yeah. And it's, I was going to ask you about that, actually, because your, your awkward situations for men mm. and, uh, and its sequels. So there is a, there's a sort of a man theme going through stuff. And is that, um, and yes, man, I appreciate it's because you're a man and you said yes. So <laughs> yeah. this is not saying that you're punching down women um, at all. Oh, you God, don't, you're, no, yeah, no and, and no one could accuse you of that. But I'm just interested in where that man stuff comes from, because there's a bit well, of yeah. Yes, man. Um, it was called Yes, man, because it's a play on the phrase "Yes, man" um, yep. Yep. You know, within business, and it's it's a well-known thing, and it feels established, and it feels almost like someone with a, a superpower, like a you know, like a Superman or a, or a Batman. Uh, but it's about saying yes to everything, and so you know that's why that had man in it. And awkward situations for men. Um, 
it was a title I just came up with that I had never said out loud before. And I was in a meeting um, in uh, America and they were going, when's your next book? And I said, oh, it's, it's some way off. And, um, and they said, well, you know, um, have you written any columns? Because uh, we, we, we've sold articles before. And I had been writing a column um, for a magazine and um, it was it was every week <laughs> do you know what it was called it was called Danny Wallace is a man <laughs> so you're right there is a, there's a definite I'm picking up on something I'm nothing if not astute <laughs> yeah and that was a deliberately kind of understated title it wasn't trying to be um, anything bigger it was just the facts he's a man and this is something that's happened to him this week the minutiae of life and the little situations the strange little moments that we all observe but we usually forget because they just they're not important um it's a minor annoyance and it slips between the cracks and it's gone forever and this was almost like writing a diary of those things you know and it would be just tiny tiny things it would be um like when someone gives you your change back in the day when we used cash, um, they would put the receipt on the palm of your hand and then put the change on. Mm -hmm. And I found that deeply uh, annoying. Or if I was using the pin card machine, they would talk me through it like it's the first time I'd ever. So all those tiny, tiny little things um, and making you know, mountains out of these little molehills. And so to this guy, I, I just said, well, I'm thinking about doing a book of columns actually. Um, called Awkward Situations for Men. And it was the first time I'd said the title and suddenly the room was full of people and suddenly they were talking about how excited they were about this project and there wasn't a project and there wasn't even a book. So based on the title alone, I had to ask if it was all right if I could do a book called Awkward Situations for Men so that I could then uh, make a show called Awkward Situations for Men, which we did and we made a pilot. Um, and, you know, so maybe, yeah, it, it's, but but it, it is in no way, none of this stuff is, is it, it all makes fun of men, really. Or, it or does, it's, and it's all kind. I mean, you are, you are the absolute poster man for kindness. <laughs> so I don't think anyone is going to say you're doing anything other than want to be uh, inclusive and bring in a, a kind of collective experience into things. And does it, just going back to monatomy for a moment, mm -hmm. is it, I'm really curious about that, and this is partly why I loved listening to it as a woman, because obviously I also can only speak from the perspective of being a woman. Mm -hmm. And we talk about our bodies a lot we see each other's bodies I think there's there's nothing you know all the stuff that's going on right now about you know suddenly the menopause being a thing that's talked about yeah. but among women it's always been talked about so there mm -hmm. are no surprises and it's always struck me that on the one hand and I can only speak from my dating experience here, but you know I'm 52 it's been broad and mm -hmm. um, I do notice that men have a certain confidence in their bodies uh, that they're not They'll walk about, let's say all types of male bodies seem quite confident to sort of wander about, tummy out, you know, whereas I think yeah. there's a there's a bit of a sort of, well, everything out, really. So there, is there a sort of difference in what conversations men will have with each other in terms of getting a bit more vulnerable and saying, actually, I don't like that bit, and oh, I feel awful about that? Oh, yeah. And I find it interesting that that your impression is that that men um, walk around with this this kind of confidence and and perhaps um, you know that's that's to do with I don't know is it the patriarchy is it that they is it the impression we have of them is that they're very confident because of you know the, the history of gender and the the power and control because uh, you know certainly I think that they've got a great way of pretending that they have a lot of confidence and certainly 
if someone were to make fun of another man's body, which is their want, they'll go and they'll poke a belly or you put a bit on or blah, blah, blah. That might crush them inside. You know, they might turn to glass and shatter, but they can't show that for whatever reason. Because, you know, in the pub with Gary, you're not going to go, actually, Gary, that really hurt my feelings. Because that's going to lead to an evening of Mickey taking that will oh, so destroy So people double down on the banter then. So if, if someone were to say it, then it would be like, oh, you're snowflake, and you'd go in harder. Yeah, the- because they're embarrassed and they're probably insecure about stuff. You know, um, Jamila Jamil was talking about the fact that no man that she's ever been out with has been comfortable with his chest. And um, I think chests and height my god height's a big a one online it's, on online flat platforms if people i say platforms like it's you know the 19 it's 1991 <laughs> apps i believe they're called yeah. and guys who are you know if you're five foot six apparently nothing's happening you're getting you're getting and if you're six foot or six foot two you're cleaning up and so there obviously is a real emphasis placed by women on height I do think though things like hair so I think a lot of guys who are follically challenged think that in an ideal world they would like a a thatch of hair but there are lots of women myself included who do genuinely like a man with not so much hair so I think there are some things that perhaps misnomers in terms of what women or whoever people are dating are looking for and there are other things that make so it's interesting the chest one I've never that's never really come up in conversation with anyone I've dated I've assumed that they like their chests of whatever proportions. Yeah, and before I was doing anatomy, I mean, I never talked to uh, another man about uh, his chest, or certainly not his testicles, um, which um, have come up a few times. Yes, I heard. But weirdly in a more playful way than than chests. Chests seem to be something that strikes at the very core of their being because, you know, they are walking around, they're strutting about, and... um, and, they, I think they, they do feel very, we do feel very concerned about that kind of stuff, you know, less so than our balls. <laughs> and mum, I know you'll be listening. I hope you're enjoying this bit in particular. Uh, my mum and dad always listen to this on a Monday with their lunch. So I'm Danny, so sorry Danny, about that. <laughs> yes. Sally and David. Sorry, Sally. Sorry, David. <laughs> apology. Um, and it's funny that I, I was in talking to my daughter, who's 21, about sort of dating and the protocols of how one feels about oneself. And I've noticed she's got so much more self-esteem at 21 than I had at 21, yeah. Yeah. which is weird in a world where there's so much scrutiny on Instagram and, you know, watching Love Island. But she's got a sort of inherent confidence in her body. And I and also a sort of really lovely attitude to dating that, you know, if anyone's lucky enough to kind of not that she's arrogant, but, you know, if you're if you're if you want to go out with me, you're going to absolutely be. She's got grateful, belief. Yeah. She's got belief in Friends. herself, which I did not have at her age. Yeah. And I said to her, I said, you know, I learned something really young, um, Ella, which is that when I was dating somebody, I would never admit to them that I thought my body was anything other than amazing. I would never say, oh, I'm a bit fat or my bum's a bit wobbly or, yeah. you know, yeah, whatever it would be. Um, I, I just wouldn't do I'd always act like I was like, you know, Marilyn Monroe and be like, I think I'm amazing. <laughs> no, because I think once people start to think, oh, you don't think you're, you look great, they might find you unattractive so i don't know if that's a sort of outmoded kind of oh, gen x thing or do you think that still goes on well i think that i think that definitely that kind of goes on because perhaps people don't want to invite that discussion they don't want to point out their own flaws in case you start to also it's almost like they haven't noticed exactly and maybe i can get away with this yeah um and i think that that's it that's across the board and i love the fact that um there seems to be um you know, a younger generation that has that strength and that self-belief. And perhaps it is as a backlash, um, a survival backlash against the, um, the 
incredible amount of imagery that they've had to deal with. I think that whichever generation was first to have to deal with that, you know, that that's a hell of a mountain to climb. And luckily there are people now at the peak um, who can see it for the ridiculousness um, that it is. And Sherpa's bringing up the rear. And Sherpa's bringing up the rear. <laughs> and is it in terms of, um, it's interesting when you think about the sort of idea that the stuff you talked about in awkward situations for men, I guess that was the classic sort of stand-up approach, right? You find a little thing like, you know, a piece yeah. of quiche getting put on a thing that looks like a, you know, like, like a, a brick from your garden and you say something about that. So in a way yeah. you were doing little sort of stand-up vignettes as a column and then a book. Yeah, they were sort of, yeah, little three-minute stories, really, with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and, you know, finding something and calling back and repeating and a little out. Um, but they all were based on real things. That was, I was quite kind of, um, it had to have come from something real so that, and I could, you know, make it funnier and all that kind of stuff, but it, it might just be a ridiculous thing that happened. Um, like my friend returning a spatula to me, a rubber spatula, um, but he brought it on a night out to the pub because that was when he was going to see me. So now I've got to carry a red rubber spatula around with me all night. And, you know, uh, something specific like that or something a bit more universal. Um, and the, the title with the men, it, it was literally just because I was a man. Yeah, no, that's that's fair, and I think uh, I think we have established you are you are a man. Um, and is there the um and and one of the things that gets observed a lot by comics nowadays, and I do you do less sort of live. When did you you don't do much sort of live stand up? No, no, no. Tours and stuff, but you yeah. have done stand up for a, a wee while. No, I, I I'd never done sort of like straight stand up um, because. I, I, it was always the wrong time for me. Mm -hmm. um, it was always the wrong time. I just you were so bloody a... busy doing all your successful things. That's why. <laughs> well, I felt very kind of. Uh, I didn't have any time to 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 be rubbish. Um, you know that time you'd. Uh, I think need where you can just go out and just not be very good for a while. And yeah, I'm get, six years you... into that. It's a really useful <laughs> transition. <laughs> yeah, because I'd I'd worked on a. I'd helped launch a comedy magazine and I'd written a hell of a lot of it and um, I knew lots of comics when I moved to London. I was about. 19 I think and if I'd done it then it would be like oh yeah who do you think he is he thinks he can do it yeah and um and then instead I went and became a, a producer and which you did really young right so you got into the BBC radio traineeship at 22 is that right something like that yeah and it was so hard to I mean I was trying to get onto that probably yeah about 10 years eight years earlier than you right and a you had to sort of complete a kind of dissertation to apply for it which lost yeah. a few of us at the first hurdle but I'd never even got close to it and I so you managed to do that uh, yeah based more purely, than a boy well yeah it was because of this magazine really yeah. and because I then was in with this kind of crowd of, of comics that I knew and liked and, and respected and um, they made me laugh and I could make them laugh and we wanted to make things together and then because of that magazine I was uh, asked to be on the Perrier panel and so I had a load of experience behind me quite young and I was still the right age I'd come out of university I'd done a radio course so it it was all there and it was kind of because of listening to On the Hour when I was a kid someone gave me a cassette tape of On the Hour um, Armando Iannucci, Steve Koo and Chris Morris uh, Peter Bainham and I I had never really understood that you could make comedy like that mm -hmm. I thought it had to be as brilliant as Faulty Towers you know but still um, a sitcom or it had to be, you know, uh, just a minute, or I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. Mm. Um, I didn't realise you could make something quite dark, very funny, quite edgy, um, that was tricking people as well uh, a little bit. If you weren't paying attention, you might have thought it was the news. Um, it was just so imaginative and smart. And so, and how I think old would that, you have been when you were listening to those tapes? 
Like tapes 14. gives it away a bit. 14. Yeah, 14, I think. Yeah. Um, and I only had the one episode, but I listened to it over and over and over again. And I remember when the day-to-day was coming out on TV, I was so excited, mm. like deeply excited. Um, and it was completely nothing like it. None of us sort of knew what to expect, really. It was a really what it's hard to imagine now because that stuff is not to a penny. The clever versions of it are still rare, mm. but it is a sort of genre that's very present and I think people also in the sort of YouTube era and people sort of pissing around with reality versus fiction it's probably hard for people to imagine how how new that was at the time yeah it had its own style it was it felt completely original and you know you talk about Damascene moments and I've had a few but probably that was one of them was listening to On the Hour for the first time and realizing oh there are people doing this stuff and it's exactly my sense of humor but I couldn't ever predict a single thing that was going to happen in it. You know, I was just like on the, on the, on a, on a ride with them and then ended up uh, working in the office where it was, you know, made. Um, So, yeah. And so I got onto that traineeship and um, I would been hanging around a lot with um, the mighty Boosh and Ross Noble. And so that's who I wanted to work with um, immediately. And and we managed to get some of that away um, before I, I sort of realized I don't really want to be in an office forever. Yeah, I think we all realised that you realised it at an impressively young age. Some of us did it a bit longer before we realised. I've always believed there's there's maybe something in this. My kids, when they get home from school, they might ask me things like, what is a front-loaded adverbial? And um, I have Christ, to say... you need to get new kids, don't you? <laughs> yeah, and, and they've obviously been learning this, and um, I haven't learnt it. And I still struggle to work out what, to, you know, is adjective the right word for this? Or is that, a ver- I, for me, it's always been about um, communication and um, write. I, I, I always say to kids, you know, write like you speak, but posher. Um, because if you can speak, you can write. You might have to take a little bit longer to, you know, work on a couple of sentences or make it a bit smoother. But if you can chat, you can write. At least you can write like me, because I try and communicate things in the way that I would communicate them if we were down the pub together. Mm-hmm. And I try and tell stories in the way that I would. And it's almost like I'm trying to maintain eye contact with the reader. And I'm trying to hold your interest, and I'm reading you all the time, and I'm trying to make sure that what I'm saying is clear and hopefully funny, but I'm also a bit puppyish because I really want you to have a good time. Mm-hmm. And that's what it is like when I'm writing a book really and I'm quite a fast writer um yeah you must be because you do knock out a lot of content I was going to ask you about that so how do you is that because you start from a position of imperfection and then think I'll work it up later so just get it all on the page and then do the kind of turd polishing not saying that anything you ever do is turd like sometimes it's more like um I'm excited I'm excited about the thing and so that makes it easier if you have an idea that you find exciting and you can see a million different ways it might go. And if you're going out and doing something that you know you're going to write about, um, then that's also um, very exciting because you're looking out always and, and you're forming the pages in your head and you can't wait to write that chapter about the guy you just met up that mountain or whatever. And um, and. And I, I can sort of see my sentences before they're written. And sometimes if I lose work, um, let's say I lose a chapter, all I need is a, a sentence or two to know what I would say next or how I would approach it. Because I've been writing, you know, for 30 years, really. Um, I, I worked on video games magazines when I was uh, 
13 or 14. And um, so you develop a voice a lot quicker and um, you start to play with words more and the words connect more in your head and sentences roll out easier. And yeah, and even with radio, something like live radio, I did a breakfast show um, for a long while and the challenge was to make every show as good as it possibly could be. And it would never be lazy. I wouldn't just play more records and I wouldn't just talk, in, in my opinion, rubbish. I would try and have good features ready to mm -hmm. rock. And then we would do a lot of writing. So you'd have a long song on and then we'd have, say, a feature. Um, and I would always want us to do it in the room first, the team. And we would challenge each other to write these things that make each other laugh. Mm -hmm. But what you're also doing is you're setting out the grammar of the show for the listener. So a listener that would um, text you uh, for one feature would write their text in a different way from the next feature mm -hmm. because it had a different style of delivery. So there was lots and lots of writing. And I, I like that. I like having those different voices where you can write with a sense of pomposity or you can write just for the jokes or you can write something from the heart um, or you can put all you know heart and funny together. Um, Which is what you kind of do. I mean, a lot of your stuff, it's really uh, the, the theme of this episode will probably end up being something around kindness. And I said earlier when you're sort of known for that, but there's something really lovely about the kind of undercutting you do and the punching down and the kind of bloke down the pub stuff, but also something that is actually a slightly, well, quite a lot of a sort of bigger purpose and something that genuinely also brings a bit of a tear. And you think actually that is really sweet. Even the genesis of Join Me coming from your um, your grandfather, mm. it was, wasn't it? Your Swiss grandfather. It was my, yeah, Uncle um, Gallus, great Uncle Gallus. And um, yeah, and you know, it, but most of it comes from my mum, who's upstairs now, uh, weirdly. And um, she's just a, a golden-hearted woman who only sees the good in people. Um, I wrote a book about rudeness, and I, I dedicated it to my mum and dad. I said, the only two people I've never seen be rude to anyone. And whenever she looks at it, she always reminds me that there was that one time. <laughs> and it was like some lady in a supermarket, you know, being a bit brusque with my mum and my mum speaking up for herself, but she still feels bad about it. Something that happened in Loughborough in like 1987. <laughs> so, which just proves my point, you know. Um, and that was fuck you very much because there was also a podcast. You did a podcast of that, didn't you? Which I loved. I used to love listening to some really lovely stuff in there. Namaste, motherfuckers. It's interesting your sort of heritage, the the Swiss. So your mum is your mum is Swiss, and I know you you very sadly lost your dad just a few months ago. Yeah, which which I was, and I'm really sorry that, that no, you went through okay. that. And it's it was interesting thinking about the podcast again, and and thinking about the question about men when you've so clearly had an incredible male role model, and you wrote really movingly on Instagram. I think you had you had the whole comedy community and wider world in, in oh. tears about your about your dad, and you described him as kind and fair and my hero and my best friend. Yeah. And I know it's easy for us to say those things once someone's departed, but in your case, that is actually that that was that was just the facts as they are, right? Oh God, yeah. And um yeah, they you know, he was uh gentle and uh, kind and supportive and and uh, funny and the smartest man um, I'll ever meet, um, but equally um, could not operate the television. Um, but he did like the radio. He loved the radio and um, and he had a good he had a good way out. Uh, he went to sleep listening to the radio um, after a day uh, a weekend where his football team won and he. Uh, um, watched a film and walked down by the seaside and ate fish and chips. And so it was all perfect. And then he um, went 
to sleep and that was that but he i know he would a we're sort of we've come to terms with that and we're happy uh, that that was the way uh, it went when it could have gone a million and one other ways and was it just unexpected did it just suddenly did you suddenly lose him yeah i'd seen him on the i'd had a real um feeling that i should take the kids around to see him on the saturday and so we drove down there but you know, social distancing and all that kind of stuff. And so we parked the car outside and he walked around and without us realizing was saying goodbye. And uh, it all felt lovely and nice. And it was a good thing to do. And um, the kids last memory of him is just seeing him standing at the door, waving and smiling. So that was all good. Um, But I know that he would be frustrated because he'd be wanting to say, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to go that way. Because he's um, very polite. Well, and he yeah. might see it as his last rude act, not to say yeah. a proper goodbye. Yeah, I think that he would he would feel very sad um, about that. But you know, so it was a peaceful. It's what we. It's, it's the, such a cliche, isn't it? So that's how we'd all like to go. But when someone does yes. go, it doesn't really make it easier. And I wonder. I wondered when I knew that had happened to you quite recently. In a way, your your new project, this is Assembly, which we can we, we Assembly, mm. which we can talk about in a moment, yeah, is and it is about sort of celebrating nice blokes in a way, isn't it? And having a platform to do that. And I did think it, I I know you were teasing that project before your dad died. So I'm guessing yeah. it was a happy coincidence. But I was thinking what a lovely tribute that you've got this community you're building up <laughs> of of men who might be as lovely as your dad. So yeah, t- tell us a bit about what that is. Well, uh, you know, again, I'm going to sound man crazy. Just boys, boys, boys with me, isn't it? I like and, men too. It's fine, yeah. Danny. Let's, let's but, celebrate the bastards. But it's strange because I've never really thought about it. And because my stuff's always been for everybody, as far as I'm concerned. And whenever anyone's broken anything down about the people who like my stuff, it's always been almost exactly 50-50. You know, when they do these like marketing things or they're going to do a book or they look at you twitter things or whatever it's always been 50 50 and and i think it's because i write i write sometimes about men for women um Mm. in that in that way so uh, we're starting to realize that there are there's a lot of media for men but it tends to be for a certain type of man or it tends to be for a certain type of man who aspires to be a certain type of man. So um, there's, there'll be a lot about, you know, cufflinks or um, yachts uh, in the Bahamas or holidays you'll never take, um, restaurants you'll never eat at, um, tuxedos worn by men you're not really that bothered about listening to. And it seemed like there wasn't anything just normal. Um, just normal, just sharing warm stories um, about family life or relationships or having a kid or being a kid or sausages, um, condiments, you know, the the little things, like I was saying earlier with the column, the little things that just, you'd never really, you wouldn't put on your CV, you know, um, but that make up something of your life. I think and, Freud would have something to say about the fact that sausages make an appearance <laughs> on the landing page for a collective yeah. group of men. Well, everybody loves sausages, but yes, you're absolutely right. Mr. Ransom, is... Freud, you know, you're really, uh, you're really ahead of your time with this. Yeah, one. imagine it was just a succession of, if I was just talking about hose pipes, aubergines and sausages the whole time, dot com. Um, yeah, so, um, so it was an attempt to do that, again, in a kind of community, and it felt like sort of starting afresh. At school, I loved school projects. That's the thing I really, really loved. Something where I would just go off and do it and then make it good and hand it in. And that's a bit like writing a book. 
And that's a bit like um, uh, making a radio show or a documentary. If you're doing it on your own, you know, you're, it's your project. And yeah, you know, you'll you'll hand it in or, or give it to someone, but it's your voice and it's your thing. And it felt a bit like doing that during lockdown. It felt a bit like, let's create something. That's our little school project. And let's get a little group of people together who might be into it. And let's try and make it fun for everyone. Is and it a so, bit of a, because it's got a sort of, there's a follow on from the concept or I guess the spirit behind Join Me, right? This is a sort yeah. of doing good things with people who only have in common that they're doing this together. So it's got that in common with Join yeah, Me. Yeah, exactly. But what's been nice about it is like with Join Me, the thing that linked all the people who joined Join Me, which is when I started my own kind of cult, um, only by asking people if they'd like to join something without telling them what they were joining or who they were joining. The people that joined tended to have two things in common. They had a good sense of humor and they were nice and they were nice to each other and they were funny with each other. And of that was born a community where I said every Friday is going to be a good Friday and you're going to do random acts of kindness for complete strangers. And it exploded and it went all sort of around the place and Europe and loads of people joining and um, all doing good deeds. And it was such good fun. And with this, um, it was asking people to join something, but saying what it was and not mm-hmm. saying you have to do this. Mm-hmm. But what's happened is from the emails that we get and the messages um, and the sort of the, the, the interaction, well, A, they all seem to be quite funny and B, they all seem to be quite nice people. Mm-hmm. And that becomes self-fulfilling as well, because even if a couple of, um, you know, ninny hammers joined, um, I think either they'd lose interest because all the nice people seem to be being quite nice and wouldn't have any uh, time for their tomfoolery and nonsense, uh, or they would just join in because quite often the people online who are awful, or in fact, people who get in touch with you sometimes um, who are awful. I remember the early days of Twitter, I had to develop a strategy because, you know, you would get someone just being horrible out of the blue, a complete stranger reaching into your life on an otherwise happy day and just being awful. And instead of um, blocking, I don't really block, um, I would sort of engage them slightly. I've always felt that that, all that social media stuff, you need to treat it a bit like you're standing on a stage. Mm. And you can't forget that actually there's a secret audience. There's Mm -hmm. a load of people who are also watching. And um, so if someone comes up and is awful to you, hey, you don't want to buckle because that will say that, hey, bullies win. Mm -hmm. You, if you ignore it, well, they've sort of won in a weird way, even though you might not have seen it. Um, if you're abusive back, just don't, man. Mm-hmm. That's, that's it's like heckling don't. a heckler. Oh, so what I would do is I would engage with them slightly, but I'd distract them. And um, I think I once heard Darren Brown talk about this years later. If he was being mugged, he would say something like, I haven't got a dinner table. And then they'd be like, huh? And then he'd make his, he'd make his sort of getaway. And I was sort of doing a similar thing with these people, except it was to calm them down so a guy would just go you're the worst you're this and that and the other and i'd just go what are you having for your tea tonight because um i (laughs) am having sausages and they'd be like and they'd still have a bit of a go and i'd go or mash i I forgot we do have potatoes (laughs) and then by the end they'd be telling me what they were having for dinner that night 
And do whatever you, it was, do, I just go, you, oh, lovely. <laughs> but you have to take, if you think about the, um, the the emotions, you know, that sort of amygdala hijack we have when we're upset and something in our brain yeah. gets hijacked. And so if you're actually, do you need to suspend actually being hurt by that? Or is it your natural thing to go back at it with humour? Because I would first have to reprogram a really hurt reaction <laughs> in order to refine the funny. So how do, how, do you miss the vulnerable bit in that? Or how do you go straight to funny? I think it's like a fight or flight thing. Um, mm-hmm. But 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 remember, if you feel like you're being watched, um, your brain w- works quicker, and it almost becomes like I've got to do this quick. I've got to yeah. punch back quick. Like being on stage, where your brain does work far faster than in the real it's just world. Like, yeah. You've got to do it, and and it feels like the the time is running out for the response. You know, if you did it the next day, who cares? Yeah. But if you come straight back, they're going to be a bit discombobulated. They're going to be surprised that they've got the attention that they were after but it's not the attention they were expecting. They're being asked a question now. And if they don't answer it, I'll just, I'll just keep asking them, but what are you having for dinner? <laughs> and it becomes surreal and more ludicrous than they're expecting. And either they'll flounce off, at which point you can do a little topper about, well, you know, I was going to ask about dessert next or whatever it was going to be, you know, whatever you can think of. Um, but you've sort of dominated, you've redominated that position of... Um, aggression but you thought it with um just ludicrousness and something a little more delightful and you've killed with kindness which i guess yeah. is the sort of and it's that you you there are at the moment it's kind of timely to be having this conversation and i know that's partly possibly why you're doing some of the things you're doing you know your lockdown project i think collectively there is a certain sort of ptsd that's going on there's people's emotions yeah. are running high there's a hell of a lot of anger i'm noticing it driving that people are so angry in cars yeah, and I maybe that's that. the equivalent of being behind a sort of twitter wall that you're in your car so you can be vile to people and it's really easy to start going oh everybody's a wanker and brexit and trump and the world's gone to hell in a handcart but somehow believing you really do sort of get what you give don't you if you decide yeah. when someone i know there's a bit in um stephen covey's um seven habits book about him seeing a guy who's kids are being appallingly badly behaved on a on a train and everybody's really sort of judging him and it turns out that Stephen Covey finally talks to him and it turns out he's on his way to say goodbye to his wife who's dying in a hospice and he's got the three mm. and so he was the only person who took an attitude of sort yeah. of curiosity and mm. didn't go this guy's just a dickhead and can't parent his kids yeah. and it's a, a bit of a grim uh, a grim analogy to use but I'm if, if you do take the time to be curious about the fact that everyone's probably got a story right and even some really difficult people there may well be a reason a bad day or a very bad childhood or something so is that just inherent in you that you you really think people are nice until proven otherwise I think so um I think that I generally think people are good and I think you're right that recently it really has felt um like the world has gotten angrier and um, and uh, that chimes into exactly what you were just seeing, uh, saying about the, the the person on the train. You know, um, there's been a lot going on and a lot of lives, and everyone is um, in a different position. Uh, some people are in studio flats uh, with a window that just faces into an internal courtyard and gets no just light. Just described my son's first home. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, and others, you know, are in trapped in buildings with, or have been trapped in buildings with people that they'd rather not be trapped with. And um, so, of course, when they're out and about, they may not be floating on air because of the year of sourdough baking that they have just been through in quite a pleasant way. And um, indeed, but but I had to learn that a little bit. I had to relearn that. 
because when I wrote that book about rudeness, that was because I had walked into a hot dog place to buy a hot dog for me and my son and was treated with such incredible rudeness that I was absolutely, I was bowled over. I was stunned. And the rudeness no, came from nowhere. Uh, all I'd done was go to a place where they advertised hot dogs to buy a hot dog from a woman who got up that morning to make hot dogs, to sell to people who wanted hot dogs like me. Well, and how was that ever going to work out well? It was a stupid <laughs> endeavour. I know. And I, anyway, I couldn't get a hot dog and I was thrown out. And um, that's Really bad business model as well, I have to say. Terrible. Yeah. Terrible. Um, and it was only through, I, I then decided to write a book about it, a whole book about uh, why I hadn't been able to buy a hot dog that day and how it made me mad for two days, as in like... I, I was flipping off buildings. Um, I was driving in a... I, I assumed that every driver on the road was doing what they were doing to annoy me specifically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's because this moment wouldn't leave my brain. I was like, why Why was she so rude? Why? why what a horrible woman. And I was interested in my own reaction to that and what I can do about it because I was now taking that anger or that that frustration elsewhere and it was making me worse. So I thought, that's quite a big thing, actually. Imagine if that happened to everyone, this sort of trauma uh, from such a mild and stupid thing. <laughs> and so I looked at it from every angle I could, a bit like in uh, that film JFK, where they look at the magic bullet theory from about a thousand mm -hmm. different angles. I was looking at the hot dog and what happened. And of course, the fact that I had no idea what had just happened to this woman. I had no idea what she was going home to. I had no idea whether she was having trouble with the business, whether she was having an existential crisis, whether she'd just been diagnosed with something. I didn't know any of that. I just assumed she was horrible. Now, Or at the very slight, least in the wrong job. Yeah. A slight caveat. I probably still think she was just horrible. But at least... <laughs> at you least, took a good game and it spawned a book. Yeah. At least I went to the lengths of, you know, researching an entire book <laughs> before I came to my conclusion. It's probably still um, cheaper than therapy, so well done. Yeah, yeah. Certainly cheaper than uh, those hot dogs. They were very overpriced. <laughs> but they needed to be because they're only selling one in ten and the other yeah. nine people are telling to fuck off. <laughs> it's, um, and it is that in terms of looking at that, that collective experience, because lots of your stuff is about collective experiences or doing something that suddenly becomes universal the concept mm -hmm. of yes man mm -hmm. is something that we can all take a bit of into our lives and I know one of one of the things with lockdown I, I've been sort of lucky enough that some of the other things I do professionally have been able to sort of be dusted down while stand-up wasn't really an option and one of the things I did quite early on I used to work a lot as a coach and I uh, not I might say not a personal trainer uh, but more of a sort of executive coach and I decided to do one hour one-off coaching sessions for right. people who were in primarily the arts people who'd sort of lost their jobs and were in a bit of a creative and or financial Funk. Yeah. And it was such an incredible, I, I wasn't really, I was doing it because I was sort of desperately bored and lost all sense of self. It wasn't really altruism as much as desperation. Mm -hmm. And it then ended up, but the two can be close bedfellows, I think, because mm -hmm. it, it, what I did realise from doing it, I got such a wonderful insight into what the collective experience was of people at the early stage of a pandemic when I wouldn't possibly have had those frank conversations with 100 people otherwise. Yeah. And they all had in common the fact that they thought everybody else was doing better than they were. They didn't think everybody else had it easier, but yeah. everybody thought everybody else was handling it better. And it was such a lovely thing to see at that early stage and think, Christ, we're all out of our depth and we all think we're the moron who can't handle life in a pandemic. Yeah. And I 
suppose what we've lost are those lovely little restorative serendipitous moments. That's what your whole career has been built on, right? Are those little chance encounters and lovely human connections because they've all got to be in a mask and sanitized or ideally not happen mm. at all. So it's a really weird backdrop for someone who's made a career out of the spirit of something that couldn't be less um, mm. sort of COVID based. Yeah, no, absolutely. And yet what what could be more in the spirit of it than what kind of started to emerge in the early days? Um, that sense of appreciation. Um, that... Tomato plants coming out of your ass, whether you wanted them <laughs> dropped off by the neighbours or not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Looking at the small things, you know, listening to the birds or watching the garden change, if you were lucky enough to have one. Um, anyone who mentions gardens has to say, if you were lucky enough to have oh, one. I know. That's the new I can't rule. talk about my Cornish rental property at all <laughs> on here. I'd get hate <laughs> Yeah. But there was a there was a sort of a spirit that I really recognized and that I I've seen so many times. And there was also, I mean, my God, fear and uh, grim, the grimmest of news all the time and worry and um, paranoia. But there was also a sense of um, appreciating small kindnesses and appreciating community, whether it was a new type of community, a digital community, or whether it was the type of community that we just lost. At least they were uh, appreciating that. And I... You know, I like anyone. I, uh, I I do a lot of stuff, right? But I I never feel good enough, and I always I, I sometimes feel like a failure. And there was a moment when there was a moment when it I realized that everyone was just stopping for a bit. Everyone was just going. Do you know what? We're going to work from home, or we're not going to do that, or he's been furloughed, or the kids are back. We can't do anything today. Let's just stop. And it was something of a relief because it just felt like everything was moving all the time and everyone was moving. And like you say, the idea that everyone else is handling things better, everyone else is doing stuff, everyone else is this and that. And um, because I kind of have to create my own work, as do you and so many other people kind of like us, it was quite nice just to kind of go, it's all right to not do that for a little bit. Just stop because the world is stopping for a bit. And I think sometimes it would do us all good if once a year there was a week where we just went, everyone's stopping, because even at Christmas no one stops. It's, it's harder, if anything. Much but we harder. Just, we just go June 1st every year. We all have a week which is called Stop Week, and we just stop. I think that could be your next project. I think that would get traction. Uh, possibly it's take not some convincing. From, <laughs> possibly from some of the bigger employers around the world. Might yeah. like it. I was always for a four-day, a mandatory four-day working week, not as a joke. But yeah. having worked for big US studios my whole life, that was not something that was going to catch no. on in a hurry. And it's into that failure thing, though, given, given what you do and how prolific your output is, yeah. is there anything that would stop you feeling that perhaps there's a, a, a niggle that you aren't good enough, that you're a failure. What would it take? I think it's always there. I think no matter what you're, what you're doing, it, it just turns into, it goes from, oh, you know, uh, feeling that, that, that you're a failure while at the same time also able to think concurrently, uh, but I'm not. It's just that thing in, in your head telling you that. Maybe it's, it's what people who aren't narcissists and psychopaths have. Maybe that's the counter. <laughs> Maybe the only people who don't have any of that are people we wouldn't want to be. I don't know. Probably, yeah. But 
but then it sort of, I suppose, then when you're doing something which absolutely on paper or to anyone objective would go, uh, no, you're not, that, that's when imposter syndrome kicks in because you go, yeah, but well, okay, I'm doing that, but I know, I, I know. So, I mean, I'm very, I've been very lucky. I'm, I'm, I come from a very balanced family. I've never had any um, uh, problems um, or issues um, with mental health, apart from, you know, a little low-level anxiety. Um, but I think that that's, that's fine during a pandemic. Um, and even in the pandemic, the worst it's got is low-level anxiety is that you haven't had those sort of dark moments that lots of people have had. No, I haven't had anything that I could compare with, uh, you know, in any good faith with mm-hmm. what a lot of people have, have gone through. You know, you have a few, you know, wake-ups and um, worries that, are, that sort of dissipate when you're making the tea in the morning and, you you know, you've just got to crack on with whatever you're doing. Um, yeah, I've had nothing I could compare with with uh, other people, really. But it's it's, you know, it's not great when that happens because you just changes who you are for a bit and then you have to um and you were home educating as well you've got kids young enough that you actually had to put in the hard yards we uh we have three children it was my wife that put in most of the most of the hard yards i would just drop in for special projects yeah because you like a special project exactly so my son would have to yeah it was great i can't give you a hot dog son but i can make you a special project yeah i was like you gotta write an essay about prince alfred or whatever no let's do a podcast come on (laughs) let's go i'll do your jingle um and then we would go and do that and so i got to do the the fun stuff whereas my my wife was staring at maths sounds like jeff lloyd and sarah barron's way to do it that was the same thing he would do an incredible three-day long edit for something for a star wars project and sarah like yeah i was teaching fucking multiplication yeah exactly much it's it's not fair it's not fair and is um before before I ask you the three questions I ask everyone on yeah. the podcast, I, I've got to, of course, ask you, you met, you met your wife through doing Yes Man, right? So saying yes did seem to open up rather a lot of doors for you, including saying yes to a lovely woman in your life. I met her um, around that period. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, during uh, Yes Man, I was, uh, there's something about saying yes more. that It's obviously, it's good for other people. Because they're like, this person's fun. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah. they want to do that, and they want to do this, and they will go there now. And um, so, you or know, that you really like them. He wants to do anything yeah, I suggest. Yeah. I must be a great person. <laughs> you know, there have been so many. Um, I've had so many. I guess over the years it's changed. I was going to say letters, but it was letters at first because that was easier for people, and then it was obviously emails and now tweets and whatever. But messages, let's say, uh, over the years from people who have, weirdly, it tends to be, <laughs> it tends to be youngish British men who've gone to Scandinavia and because they said yes and ended up meeting a Scandinavian girl and having like the greatest weekend of their life and then moving to Scandinavia. I've had that story many times. That sounds great. It sounds good. And then I've had women who, um, one of my favorites was this lady who she was inviting me to her wedding. That was it. And the wedding happened because of Yes Man. She had been left in the most cliched, unimaginative and boring way by her husband of many years who had done literally the things that we all think of um, when we think of the midlife crisis cliches. Yeah. So he thought it was a checklist. I think I so, dated him too. <laughs> so so there was the, the the younger woman who may have been 
at his worker secretary of his or you know administrative staff it was that cliche that you mm-hmm. get from those sitcoms not secretary but you know what i mean like it was someone he had some power over mm-hmm. um in those days it might have been a secretary if it was yeah. in the letter writing days <laughs> exactly um and he'd bought the sports car and he'd left and all the stuff um and she was the kids had grown up and she was now in this job that she realized she hated and so she decided to look for a new one and whatever came up, she'd say yes to. And she did. And she ended up meeting this mad French guy who rode a motorbike, falling deeply in love, doing whatever she wanted, moving from job to job in this, just doing things in this French village and um, marrying him and, and was saving me a seat. And um, I, I would have gone, but, uh, you know, I, I thought it'd be a bit weird. <laughs> I love but, the fact you said no to the best Yes Man story ever. What I know, I should have gone, I should have gone. <laughs> that was a very weak punchline. I can uh, see why you're not a stand-up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you, not life sometimes doesn't give you the punchlines. <laughs> you know, she, that true? You know, Just I'm gonna the have punches. To blame, I'm going to have to blame her for that one. <laughs> but that's the spirit, no ownership, blame the audience. <laughs> and is um, are you still in touch with Jim Carrey? I'm sure everyone asked you, but I'm sure listeners would like to know. Uh, no, you know, it was never, you know, it's another no to come out of Yes Man. How disappointing. I know, but we had a great time in our, you know, these these film stars who move from film to film, they're not going to want to keep in touch with everyone they meet. No. But we we were we had fun um while we hung out, and I always knew that that would be the thing. And um we've we yeah i suppose we hung out on set quite a bit and then when he was in london um we had some time and then another point in california and so i i got my i got my i got my jim carrey fix it was good so he won't be coming on monatomy and talking about his moves anytime soon well i could ask him you never know namaste motherfuckers what would you pick as your namaste motherfucking moment well, I was thinking about that, and there, there have been a, there have been a few, there have been a few along the way. But for me, there was a, just a lovely moment that sparked something very special, which was when I got my first joinee, the first person to join join me, um, and I just thought, this is this is something, even if it's just me and this bloke, it's something, and it led to something um, very special. People often ask me what is my favourite project that I've done, and I find that almost impossible to answer. Um, because each has taken on a life after the book ends, you know? Um, in, in, in some ways, and this sounds very cliched, but it's where the story begins is when the book ends, mm-hmm. because it then becomes interactive, because you can meet the people that I've told you about. And in fact, all these meetings of joinees have happened um, uh, for the last 18 years or whatever, and they've all met through this book. And that's a good moment for me as well, because... In all that time and with all these thousands of people, um, many of them have ended up getting together. Um, Many have split up, but many are still together. And you go from that picture of that guy to me now walking into a pub in central London sometime in December and looking to my right and seeing there's a whole room that's full of children that have been born because of the book because their parents came out to a join me meetup, they met, they fell in love, and they started a family. And now all these kids all know each other. Um, oh, mate, I'm getting goosebumps now. It's great. Isn't and it? I don't know what they tell their children, you know, 
uh, or like who I am. Yeah, we signed uh, up to a knocking shop masquerading yeah. as a social experiment, and <laughs> exactly. then you came along. Exactly. So um, that's always nice, and um, yeah, and so that for me is a moment. You go from that passport photo to that room full of kids. Yeah. Well, that's a very beautiful. That might be in the in the league table of Namaste motherfucking moments. You're right up there, I would say. Good. And is um and in terms of your to undercut that with a joke, what is your favourite joke? Well, here's the thing. I'm not going to tell you the joke. I'm going to I'm going to tell you where to, for the podcast. I'm going to tell you where to find the joke. Okay. So that uh, as your listeners get to the end of this podcast, presumably they have access to technology if they're listening to this, and they can go uh, onto YouTube and type in. Uh, the Moth Joke, M-O-T-H, Norm MacDonald. And you'll find the comedian Norm MacDonald on Conan O'Brien telling um, a very simple joke in a very simple way. Excellent. And we will put a link to that in the show notes. And uh, if there was one bit of life advice you could give to anyone listening, what would it be? Um, it's it's I, I've sort of it's become something that I say now, but... Um, but I, I say it because I, I think it's true. Um, six words. Uh, be nice. Get involved. Have fun. Um, be nice because you should um, put that foot forward first always. Uh, get involved because if you don't do stuff, stuff won't happen. And have fun because otherwise what's the point? <laughs> That was the very kind Danny Wallace. Every episode, I pick a thing inspired by my guest that I'm going to do. And this week, I am going to join Assembly, Danny's latest club and lockdown project. Now, to quote from the site, it's a place for men who say nice things behind people's backs and who can cook a decent omelette but want to cook a better one, who prefer to be funny but can stretch to serious. It's for men who are mates, brothers, dads, sons, single, married or other. It's for men who are trying their best. And I've decided it's also okay for women to join it. And if not, I'm happy to be the first. So that's what I'm going to do. We'll put a link to that on the show notes. Namaste, motherfuckers, was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and was produced by Mike Hansen and Karu Shadami for Pod People Productions. Music by Jake Yap. If you've liked today's show, please subscribe now on your favourite podcast app and also rate and review the show, not because I'm needy and crave external affirmation, but because it helps other people find the show. So that's it for the show this week. Thanks again so much to Danny for joining me. We'll be back in your feed next Monday, as always, when I will be talking to coach, mentor and writer of hit book, Why Losing Your Job Could Be the Best Thing That Ever Happened to You, Eleanor Tweddle. I think it is like breaking up with someone um, when you get made redundant. It's exactly the same. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Bad people. 
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.